The Sausalito and the San Rafael were like old friends. They were both built in New York and then shipped in pieces to San Francisco to serve as ferries between Sausalito and San Francisco for the North Pacific Coast Railroad. Since the San Rafael had departed San Francisco, the Sausalito would have also departed Sausalito heading to San Francisco around the same time. Captain Mackenzie of the San Rafael knew that they should meet with the Sausalito at some point, but with the dense fog, all he could do was ring the bell and occasionally stop the ship to look for a sign of another ferry. Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the San Rafael sinks into the fog? Here we are. Enjoy! The San Rafael was late leaving San Francisco by about 10 minutes, even though this was the regular 6.15 ferry. Due to the thick fog, the gate agent told passengers as they boarded that they were not going to be leaving on schedule. Captain McKenzie would later say that it was the thickest fog he had seen on the bay in many years, and he was an experienced captain. He set the ship's speed to a slow one, respecting the conditions that he found himself in, and as they left the slip, they safely traveled past a tug going the other direction. On hearing the bell off Lombard Street, he continued on his usual route, putting his course in the direction of Alcatraz Island. It was a Saturday evening, and the San Rafael found herself full of people who had taken day trips to San Francisco from the local area to see shows and enjoy a day in the city. Many of them were families who had taken family outings. Though the passengers who boarded the San Rafael settled in to play cards, read a book, eat dinner at the restaurant, or enjoy a drink, the fog was putting a damper on everyone's evening. It was not just Captain Mackenzie who was on edge about his inability to see. The passengers had also noticed the low visibility and there was muted discussion among them about the chance of a collision in such a fog. The crew was just as concerned. In the engine room, Martin Christensen, the first assistant engineer, had rested his hand on the lever to reverse the ship since they left the slip, certain they would need it at any moment. The second mate, C.H. Johnson, stood at the bow as lookout, trying to see the expected Sausalito, as well as any other dangers the fog might hold. In the pilot house, Captain Mackenzie and his first mate, Charles Johnson, also stayed on alert. They had been delayed. There was a chance that the Sausalito had as well. It was hard to know exactly at what point their paths might cross. The Sausalito, under the command of Captain Tribble, had left Sausalito several minutes before the San Rafael had departed from San Francisco. On board of the Sausalito, there were far fewer passengers than on the San Rafael. But one of the passengers, a Mr. Ed Thomas, would later say 
he had hardly been able to see the lookout on the Sausalito, let alone see the oncoming San Rafael. Both ships could hear one another, though. Captain Mackenzie of the San Rafael would say that both ships were blasting long, repeated blasts on their whistle, but in the confusion of a thick fog, the whistles were practically meaningless, except to cause anxiety for a majority of the people on board the ship. Captain Mackenzie did realize that the Sausalito seemed to be right ahead of them, and he immediately rang down to the engine room where Martin Christensen, the assistant engineer, had been anticipating just such an occurrence. The San Rafael slowly began to back away from the oncoming Sausalito. Captain Tribble would be slower to act, and though it was only by a matter of moments, it would prove fatal. There would be some debate about how fast the Sausalito had been traveling when the collision occurred, with some people saying that she was traveling too fast considering the conditions. But with Captain Mackenzie reporting that both ships had been traveling slowly, it is hard to say, therefore, whether or not the speed of the Sausalito played a role. But even with her engines reversed, the ship was still being carried by her momentum forward, with the San Rafael right in front of her. It has also been argued that the tide played a role, dragging the side of the San Rafael in the direction of the oncoming bow of the Sausalito. No matter the factors at play, the bow of the Sausalito would smash directly into the restaurant of the San Rafael, which was full of passengers who were enjoying their dinner as they crossed the bay. Chief Officer on the San Rafael Charles Bagge had not even seen the Sausalito until she struck. He had chosen for himself a lookout station facing away from the advancing Sausalito, and before he could even turn on his heel to see what was happening when he heard the signal to back the ship, there was an impact. It was strong enough that the starboard paddle box was lifted out of the water, the bow of the Sausalito sticking right through it and he immediately knew that they had struck a fatal blow. Pandemonium immediately broke out all across the ship. What had occurred was most immediately felt by those in the restaurant, who suddenly found themselves knocked from their seats and buried under debris as the bow of the Sausalito entered the dining room. The impact had enough force that portions of the paddle wheel were thrown onto the floor of the dining room for all of the patrons to see. The cooks, who had been in the kitchen of the restaurant, busy with the dinner rush, found themselves knocked down and battered by falling pieces of the ship. Some of the people who had been in the restaurant had been forced out into the passageway by the force, along with their tables, getting injured in the process. One of the passengers, T.J. Lennon, who had been eating a steak when the impact came, and for a moment, he was pinned. After wiggling free, he realized that one of his companions, Jim McHugh, had been injured far worse. One of his arms was broken, and his ear was no longer fully attached. Lennon could see that McHugh was on his feet and helping people escape in spite of his injuries, and so he turned his attention to what he needed to do. His first thought was for a life preserver, and many other people across the ship had the same thought. Fortunately, the San Rafael was well-equipped, 
and the sailors of the ferry were throwing as many life-saving boys into the sea as they could. The San Rafael had already began to sink, though Captain Mackenzie tried to reassure everyone that everything would be fine. At the moment of the impact, some of the people who were on the upper deck were able to simply step across onto the Sausalito. One of the first people to do so was passenger Charles Wendt. He almost immediately caught sight of Captain Tribble, and he asked him why they had not lowered their boats. But Captain Tribble had said that everything was all right. For a moment, he backed his ship up, but the water rushed into the hole in the San Rafael so fast when the Sausalito was removed that it was shouted to him to come back and instead throw a line down to attach the two ships. He obliged, placing the bow of his ferry back into the hole it had created in the first place. Ropes were thrown down, and the two ships were attached. More people were able to climb between the ships, either by simply stepping between the two decks, or by climbing along the ropes that attached the ships. Two more of the people who quickly jumped onto the Sausalito were two friends who had been traveling together, Angelo Brizolara and Francis Mulhern. Almost as soon as they set foot on the Sausalito, both men grabbed ropes and began throwing them to the crowd still trying to escape the San Rafael and pull people to safety. They also kept an eye open for anyone who fell in the water, including passenger Virginia Beam, who had been swept out of the restaurant. She had not been concerned since she was a strong swimmer, and she was content to stay in the water while those who were in a greater danger were saved. She had a good vantage point to look up and watch Brizolara and Mullern at work, and she would be among the first to speak up and insist that they got the credit that they deserved once on shore. A few minutes after the collision, Assistant Engineer Christensen was informed by one of the firemen that water was rushing into the engine room, and they were going to have to flee. Chief Engineer Joan had been near the engine the entire trip before the collision with the same concerns about the fog as everyone else. But as soon as the accident had occurred, he had run to help with the evacuation of the ship. He would eventually be badly injured while trying to launch one of the ship's boats to help evacuate people, and this left Christensen in charge of bringing the engine crew to safety. He banked the engine fires, unaware of how serious the ship's condition was at that time. It was his thought that, no matter how much the ship was in danger, it would take a while for the water to reach the boilers, and, with the fires banked, the ferry would be able to keep up steam until they could safely bring her to land somewhere. It was a thought that would prove to be overly optimistic. Clinton Mason, a passenger on the San Rafael, found himself trapped in the upper cabin of the ferry. He had originally placed himself on the lower deck, but had found the fog stifling, and had instead found himself off-place higher up. As the ferry settled quickly in the water, the passengers in the cabin began to panic. They were well too stern of the ship, and with it clearly sinking fast, they worried they would not have enough time. Not only that, but instead of even trying to escape due to the lack of a clear means of exit, 
the people in the cabin seemed to have mainly fallen into a dangerous chaos. Clinton Mason, therefore, decided to forego the door completely, not being willing to fight his way through the panicked crowd. Mason began to smash the cabin windows and tear away their sashes, badly cutting his hand in the process, but obtaining a clear means of escape, which went very far in calming the crowd in the cabin. Right outside of the window that Mason helped people out of one by one, there was a lifeboat that was attached to the Sausalito and was still hanging from the davits. From this, the passengers were able to climb onto the deck of the Sausalito until the bottom of the boat fell out from the crowds of people who were traveling across it, and the rest of the passengers were forced to find other ways to pass between the ships. On the deck of the rapidly sinking San Rafael, Fireman Gilo of the Sausalito, who had been helping with the evacuation, heard some troubling news. The fires were still burning, and the boiler was still hot. With the ship sinking, there was becoming a very real possibility that there would be a boiler explosion, something that was likely to not only destroy the San Rafael, but also the Sausalito. Gilo immediately stepped forward, diving through the completely submerged boiler room and turning the valves to shut off the steam. He came out of the water out of breath. It had been a long and dangerous dive, but he had managed to avert a catastrophe. At this point, the water was so full of lifebuoys and ship's boats that passengers on the San Rafael found they could use them as a gangway to cross between the two boats which was fortunate, because the Sausalito was now trying to remove the ropes that connected them to the sinking boat, afraid that they would be dragged down as well. A tug had also arrived on scene and was pulling people out of the water, while Chief Mate Bage of the Sausalito had manned one of the ship's boats and was also pulling as many people as he could find to safety. On board the Sausalito, Brizolara, who this entire time, with help of his friend Modern, had been using ropes to pull people to safety, was faced with a new crisis. Another passenger from the San Rafael, a Mrs. Waller, found that her three-year-old was not among those who had been rescued. In her desperation, she tried to jump into the water. Brizolara was finally forced to tie himself to her with a rope he had been using and wind the other end of the rope around a stanchion until others could come to his aid in preventing Mrs. Waller from her self-destructive path. On this crisis being at an end, Brizolara caught sight of Virginia Beam, who this entire time had been in the water, and he threw her a rope, which she caught. As soon as she was pulled to safety, Brizolara fainted onto the deck. An attending doctor, informing the concerned onlookers, that something had snapped in his shoulder. Among those who were still in the water were Winslow Beatty, who had been traveling with his cousin and her friend. The three of them found themselves in the water, where Beatty kept himself and the two women afloat for over ten minutes until they were able to attract the attention of a boat from the Sausalito. Not impressed with the conduct of the men managing the boat who rescued them, Beatty took charge and helped in the rescue of several other passengers, including a little boy who had been keeping afloat, clinging to a stick of wood. 
Unfortunately, this would prove to not be the child of Mrs. Waller. Indeed, they were not able to immediately find the parents of little boy, and Olive and Winslow took him home for the night until he was reunited with his family the next day. Captain McKenzie was the last person on board of the San Rafael. He did his best to ensure that. He walked through the cabins of the sinking ship and then went below. There was the ship's freight horse, Dick, still tied with a halter. Captain McKenzie caught the halter rope and did his best to lead the horse to safety, but Dick panicked as he was led towards the water. Captain McKenzie, realizing there was no time, could only abandon the ship hoping that the horse would swim to shore when the ship sank. He could not be certain of the fate of Dick, but he was confident that he and his crew had done what they could and that the evacuation had been as orderly as possible, considering the circumstances. Not all of the passengers agreed. Some of the passengers described the crew as being lackluster in their efforts, and they were certain that when Captain McKenzie had abandoned ship, there were still dozens of people on board that he neglected to save. Assistant Engineer Christensen felt that due to how the ship had sank, there must have been people trapped in the middle decks. At least one officer of the Sausalito would say that he thought that due to the number of people he had seen in the water, there was no way that everyone had been saved. The ticket agent who had sold tickets for the 615 trip for the San Rafael did not help matters when he told members of the press that he must have sold around 250 tickets for the trip. Since those who were saved numbered between 150 and 200, the papers announced that it was likely that the remaining number had been lost. But since they were most likely day laborers, their absence would only be felt when they did not arrive at work on Monday. It was soon discovered that those lost totaled five. In addition to Mrs. Waller's three-year-old son, there was George Treadway, a waiter in the restaurant of the Sunken Ferry, and passengers Alexander Hall and W.G. Crandall. The final person who was lost is not named, and many newspaper articles put the count at three something disproven by the later papers relating to Alexander Hall. Crandall did not know how to swim, but rather than escape, even as his friends shouted to him from the decks of the Sausalito to join them, he chose to remain on board the sinking ship and help as many people as he could with life preservers. No one was certain how or when he ended up in the water. Alexander Hall's widow and children would eventually sue the North Shore Railroad Company, and the courts would award them damages, finding that the accident was a result of company negligence. The same was true of a court case filed by Miku, who asked to receive damages for his broken arm, lost ear, and the property he had owned that was lost with the sunken ferry. Initially, both Captain McKenzie and Captain Tribble had their certificates taken away due to the accident, but there was swift outcry. Captain McKenzie had, by everyone's account, been traveling slow. 
and passengers could speak to his repeated stops to look for the Sausalito as they neared the place where the two ferries would expect to pass one another. The San Rafael had seen the Sausalito before the Sausalito had seen them, and they had even begun reversing, something the Sausalito had not managed. Captain McKenzie would also claim that the San Rafael was solidly within course, something that would have meant that the two ferries should not have collided, though this was harder to verify. It was also clear that Captain McKenzie really had remained on board of the San Rafael until there was nothing else that he could do. He had been sailing on the San Francisco Bay for over 50 years by the time of the accident, and had no shortage of people who were willing to step up and speak for his skill as a captain. The public did not feel as though Captain McKenzie and Captain Tribble should have an equal share of the blame of the accident. Indeed, most of the crew of the San Rafael did not blame Captain Tribble either. They thought that the entire accident was just bad luck, and an unusually thick fog. Captain McKenzie was soon reinstated and placed as captain of the Sausalito. The Sausalito would continue to operate as a ferry until the 1930s, when she was retired and became the clubhouse of the Sportsman Yacht Club of Antioch. There would be attempts to salvage the San Rafael, which sank in 20 fathoms, but these were eventually given up. The collision remains the worst collision in the history of San Francisco ferry operations, and the extensive coverage in papers at the time would prove inspirational. Jack London would use the story of the collision as the opening scene of his book, The Sea Wolf, a work many consider to be his best. For more information, please see The San Francisco Call from December 1st, 1901 or see our other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.